before we get started with this episode of Curious Conversations, I do want to take a couple minutes, maybe a few seconds, to uh, make a couple things clear. Uh, first is that I hope and am guaranteed that uh, you will disagree with much of what I'm going to say. Uh, two, um, my hope in I'm hoping to be guaranteed uh, you will still listen to what I have to say. And three, uh, this will spur on conversations uh, that it will kindle curiosities within yourself and will also uh, cause you to think about and uh, write down or talk about your own thoughts as it comes to these conversation topics. Uh, these are not topics that are often talked about openly in churches or in society in general. Uh, we're too busy talking about other things. But in Curious Conversations, uh, I seek to uh, cause you to think about things uh, that you would not normally think about. Uh, so, if you want to get started, by all means, let's go. episode of the Curious Conversations, we talk about grace and shame, we talk about joy and glory. Uh, I hope you enjoy this um, episode. If you do, please uh, continue the conversation by uh, talking to your friends about such topics as well as sharing these podcasts with your friends. Beyond that, if you want to talk to me, you can go on Twitter and look up Zachary Kameen, uh, Facebook um, go on Facebook for me and find me on there. Also on YouTube, The Curious Christian. Um, and Zachary Kameen. Uh, by all means, uh, you'll enjoy the content from all these things. And also, uh, I'm a pretty enjoyable guy to talk to. So, come on down. Join the conversation. Enjoy the conversation. And as always, drink some coffee and come to Jesus. Grace and shame. Grace is simply the free gift, the freely giving of God to uh, his people or to people in general or to creatures uh, who have not deserved uh, or it's sometimes ill-deserved. Uh, this may be also the withdrawing of the wages of sin, which is uh, curse, death, pain. Uh, shame, so uh, going back, uh, grace is objective. Uh, it's something outside of us is an object that uh, is there whether or not we uh, feel it or what have you uh, it is not necessary for us to feel grace grace is not a feeling now moving on to shame shame is 
more so subjective. It is a feeling that you have. You feel shame. Uh, now you can be shamed, but the idea of being shamed is to inflict the feeling of shame upon somebody. To do something in order to make them feel the subjective reality of shame. So, uh, what do we do with uh, grace and shame? Uh, grace, can, can shame be gracious? I would argue, yes. Uh, if God gives the person the gift of shame, it is still a gift, even though somebody doesn't necessarily enjoy it. Uh, one of the best examples that I could give on this subject is uh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy said that when he became a Christian in prison, he said that God finally gave him the gift of guilt, finally gave him the gift of shame for his atrocities, for his crimes, for his sins. He finally felt bad about what he did. He finally felt bad about who he did it to. Uh, to those girls and above all to God himself. To, because those girls were not just girls, but they were image bearers of God. And he felt ashamed for destroying God's image. And uh, mutilating God's image. He recognized that and he repented of that. And he repented of it because he felt ashamed. Uh, often shame comes before repentance. Uh, shame can be described as a wasting away that like cancer or, or rottenness of bones like the marrow of your body being sucked out. Uh, also, the feeling of oppressing. Uh, Psalm 32 describes it as uh, the Holy Spirit's hand being heavy upon him, uh, upon the man who keeps silent about his sin. And so as we are silent about our sin, we feel shame, we feel guilt, we feel the hand of God pressing upon his child. And it compels us to repent, it compels us to act, which then afterwards we feel uplifted, we feel the grace of God giving us joy again. That, that is why shame is a gift. Shame is a grace because shame leads us to the cross. Now, worldly guilt, worldly shame will do no such thing. Worldly uh, guilt will only lead to uh, more guilt, more shame, a sort of uh, sorrow that can be un abated. You cannot uh, stop that kind of shame. 
uh, worldly guilt has no dimmer switch or has no uh, relief. People find a, try to find relief by numbing it, but it is not true relief. It is simply uh, removing the symptoms, trying to numb the pain, but the pain remains. What, what the world needs is grace and a gracious, a gracious shame so as to lead us to the cross of Christ. Now, I do want to make a couple more points uh, about shame. Uh, shame is not just about uh, what we've done, but also who we are. We are ashamed of being a sinner. Uh, we are ashamed of the type of person we were. Uh, we are ashamed of being uh, the chief of sinners, as Paul puts it. Uh, we are ashamed of the plank that's in our own eye as we look upon the one to whom has no plank, has no speck. There is no amount of sin that our brother can commit that would then justify our sin. We must look to our sinless brother. We must look to Christ. Uh, I do, but... So, when I say we must feel ashamed, or that grace makes us feel ashamed of who we are, this is not to say we are to feel ashamed about our skin tone, our nation, our, nation, our nationality, our place of ancestry. There is a growing desire of our culture to uh, shame people for being Irish or for being English or German, uh, Japanese, Chinese, uh, Scottish, Nigerian, Ugandan, Sudanese, yep, and Somalian, on and on and on. Uh, these, these are things that uh, doesn't matter which part of the world that you live in. Uh, this desire of being shamed for who you are, as far as that goes, uh, matters not. Uh, certainly, Paul uh, criticizes the Cretans, or the people of Crete, for being, uh, or he brings up the fact that uh, in Crete there are people who call Cretans lazy. Uh, he himself uh, agrees with this assessment, though he says there's got to be somebody who's not lazy. There's got to be some men who uh, do meet the qualifications of an elder, so go find them. Uh, this recognition that there are some cultures that are uh, have uh, certain sins, 
such as slothfulness with the Cretans, uh, certain sins that are prevalent in their culture, is not wrong to say, for it is something that is scripturally said. God says it to his own people all the time. He talks about Israel, or he talks about Judea. He splits them up into tribes, um, but you cannot call God a tribalist. He does not say that one tribe is better than another. He doesn't say that uh, Egypt is better than Israel, or Israel is better than Egypt, or what have you. He simply doesn't. Uh, he recognized that all men are sinners and all societies are filled with sinners and that there are some sins that are prevalent in others. Uh, it is not considered racist uh, to point out that uh, black Israelites are black supremacists. The whole notion of black Israelites is to segregate most of the world. Uh, this is wrong and it is evil uh, and something that should be preached against. Uh, any, anything that is uh, seeking to lift up one culture above another as a way of saying that they are supreme over another should be repented of. Uh, knowing that all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God alone is supreme. So we should certainly pray that God gives us the grace to be better as a culture, as our reformers did, as our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all the ages have, and beyond that, that we would pray uh, that we would get a healthy share of shame for our for our individual sins, for our family sins, for our neighborhood sins, for our local, county, state, and national, and even global sins. Uh, we have sinned against God, and I pray that we uh, feel the grace of shame uh, for these things. My last name is Kameen. My dad's last name is Wilson. Okay. There are a lot of things that are hinged to that name that are good, and a lot of things that are hinged to that that are bad. Uh, such as there are a lot of uh, Confederate Army people, a lot of slave owners that are tied with the last name Wilson. Uh, as far as we can tell, none of my uh, direct uh, ancestors were slave owners. Uh, we can trace our ancestry back to about the 1700s here in America, and as far as we can tell, none of them were slave owners. Uh, and then on my, the last name, my actual last name, Kameen, uh, plenty of Nazis were named Kameen. A lot of atrocities were done by those who shared my last name, Kameen. Um, and even in my directness, my grandfather who gave us our last name, 
uh, his, he, you know, divorced my, uh, grandma, left my family, things like that, uh, I didn't even know who my father was till I was 21, his last name being Wilson, and I bring these things up because, uh, these are certainly shameful things. But they, those things do not call me to be ashamed of my last name. It does not call me to be ashamed of my father. Or to associate myself with my grandfather and his uh, kindred. Or my father and his kindred. Uh, and, and yet, I am called, in one sense... To be ashamed of that which is not necessarily shameful. Uh, I, I am told in scripture, uh, the Lord Jesus says that I must be willing to hate father and mother um, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Um, to be willing to follow him, I, I need to be willing to uh, be ashamed of my ancestry. Uh, the family I come from. And I am perfectly okay with that. And some may say that uh, no one should be able to tell you to be ashamed of your family. And this is something I want to say. I don't... The only system that I'm aware of that calls you to be in constant reminder of your family is the military because you have to use your family name as an association of yourself Uh, when you know somebody you don't know them, you know their family that they come from Uh, there are a lot of people from the Johnson family in the military there's only two Kameens that have been in the American military since the 80's and that's me and my uncle so it's pretty easy to pick us out um, so dealing with that, um, I see plenty of my fellow soldiers, plenty of my battle buddies, who are not proud of their last name. They try to make a name for themselves. On Facebook, they don't have, uh, their proper name. They don't have their family name on their Facebook for whatever reason. Um, and this is certainly, uh, sadness. Uh, beyond that, I do want to talk about, um, something that is prevalent in our culture, which is the LGBTQ community, where children have no problem with going against their parents' teaching. Uh, parents often taught their daughters and their sons, uh, you know, to marry, you know, if they're a boy, to marry a good girl, uh, if they're a girl, to marry a good boy, and to make other good boys and girls, just as they tried. Uh, and one of the things that happens uh, when one comes out as gay and whatnot is they know it brings shame to the family. But they don't care about that. 
Uh, they're willing to lose father and mother. They, they hate their father and mother for the sake of their homosexuality. So that's why I say when it comes to Christianity, uh, Christ alone is the one who is the only one that is deserving of coming out for without caring about consequences. There are a lot of former Muslims who have death warrants on their head from their family because the families recognize that becoming a Christian is a public declaration of their hatred towards the family. Same thing with in China and a lot of other Asian countries. Uh, a lot of here in America there are some situations like that. Um, you can have some atheistic uh, tendencies that see it as a smack in the face when one of their kids uh, uh, becomes a believer of Christianity. They see it as a public uh, declaration of their hatred of the family way. This is certainly important. Uh, there's a reason why Christ mentions that you must be willing to leave father or mother. Uh, he doesn't mention you need to leave your sin in that passage. He does say, go sin no more uh, in plenty of passages. But he doesn't lift sin up to the same uh, gravity as he does family. Family is a necessary good. It is a joyful thing. It is a thing that um, invokes pride. Pride of family, pride of place and is something that he calls us to uh, leave behind. Uh, he wants us to see something that is nat naturally joyful, naturally pride-invoking, and he wants to see you to see it as shameful compared to the great pride and joy and precedence that can come from uh, being in the family of Christ, in the family of God. Uh, being willing to leave your father and mother, your children, your uh, brother and sister, in order to cleave to Christ. Uh, the only the only member that he doesn't call that to is uh, your wife or your spouse. He doesn't call you to disown your spouse for the sake of Christ type of thing. Uh, though I caveat, uh, there is the call by Christ's servant Paul that if uh, your spouse is unbelieving and they want to disown you, they want to leave you, they want to divorce you, then to let it happen, and you should feel no you should feel no guilt of remarriage. Um, so that being said, um, there is a conflict in our culture where the culture wants us as millennials, wants us as kids, wants us as uh, just Americans or as global citizens, whatever, to be willing to uh, sacrifice our families for the sake of their agenda. And I would say that the only thing that you should be willing to sacrifice your family for is Christ alone.
say that again, the only thing, the only person, the only man that you should be willing to sacrifice your family for is Christ alone. Uh, it should not be for your sin. It should never be for your sin. It should be for the Savior. To make my point in this segment about enjoying the shame, uh, I want to go back to church history, or in history in general, into the uh, second century, the fourth persecution under Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Now, many may be shocked to know that uh, Marcus Aurelius, who's best known for his writings um, called Meditations, for he was a philosopher in uh, a Stoic, he was taught to be very indifferent towards both pleasure and pain. Uh, you'd be shocked to know that he was a fierce and merciless opponent of Christians and responsible for the fourth general persecution against them. The cruelties against Christians in this persecution were so inhumane that many of those who watched them shuddered with horror and were astonished at the courage of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs had their feet crushed in presses and were forced to walk over thorns, nails, sharp shells, and other pointed objects. Others were whipped until their sinews and their veins were exposed, and then after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised were killed in terrible ways. Yet few turned from Christ or begged their torturers to lessen their pains. I'll give you a couple examples. Where Germanicus, a young man and true Christian, was delivered to wild lions on account of his faith, he behaved in such an astonishing courage that several pagans were converted to the faith that inspired such bravery. And secondly, Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John, an overseer of the church in Smyrna, heard that soldiers were at his door and were looking to catch him. But instead of escaping, um, he sat and prayed. Uh, nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After the sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king, who has saved me? In the marketplace he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, and, which was the usual custom, because he assured them that he would be immovable in the flames and would not fight them. And as the dry sticks were placed around him and lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword, and when he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. Although the quantity, or although Christians from Christian friends asked to be given his body, 
as it was that they could bury him, the enemies of the gospel insisted that it be burned in the fire, which was done. So, uh, those were two men, uh, two of my brothers in Christ from about 1800 years ago, who had suffered great persecution for what they believed, because uh, they recognized the great need for uh, Christ in the world. Uh, keep in mind that these men lived in a time where less than one in a thousand people were Christians. They were the vast minority during this time. They're not like here in our world today where one third of the world is Christian. Uh, they lived in a time where like I said, less than 1% was Christian. And yet they had such boldness, such faith, and we lived downstream from them. Uh, they recognized what was worth being shamed, uh, what was worth being maimed, what was worth getting their eyes gouged out, their hands cut off, their tongues um, seared, uh, fed to lions, they saw that it was worth it. Uh, today, uh, not only Christians, but even their persecutors, their persecutors aren't willing to get a paper cut for what they believe. There's very little in this world that we would be willing to do for our faith in what we believe in our doctrine. Uh, we are not like used to be and in fact though the enemies of the gospel today are weaker and whinier than the Christians and what's worse is the world has convinced the church has convinced the Christians that we are somehow weaker and whinier than them uh, last I checked there uh there weren't pride parades in June. But what they recognize is that once a year, for a month, about 30 days, they have these pride parades, but they recognize that one out of seven days, so 52 days out of the year, Christians get together and worship the one true God. And in that more political upheaval, more civil unrest, more world upside down turning happens in two hours of worship that could ever happen in a whole month of debauchery. So we can recognize certainly that being a Christian is indeed a shameful thing. You may take up your cross. You may have to see persecution. You may have to answer questions. You may even have to die but there's one intriguing thing that is um, with uh, the church and with the gospel and with Christianity is that we Christians enjoy the persecution not in a sadomasochist way but in a way of recognizing as Polycarp did that uh, 86 years 80 some odd years he had served his king 
with never once being wronged. So why would he blaspheme his king now? So we should see similarly. So there you have it, folks. You can't get away from judgment. You can't get away from grace. You can't get away from blessings. You can't get away from persecution. You can't get away from uh, a form of judgment. Uh, what matters to you is who's doing the judging, who's doing the blessing, who's doing the grace, who's giving the grace, who's giving the judgment. These things are what matter to you. <clears throat> and these are the things that you need to consider. Do you want to be judged by the Lord? Or do you want to be judged by the world? Uh, you, you don't get to choose neither. Because the natural scheme of things is you're going to be judged by one of them. Uh, beyond that, if you are judged by the Lord, you will be judged by the world later. Because the world will one day be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and the whole world will be Christianized, and the shame will lie with the unbeliever, with the non-Christian. Uh, if you choose this, uh, the temporal, more peaceful, more at the t this time of history path, it's not really a path because the further you go, the harder it will be for you. Uh, if you choose the path of destruction, you may have uh, less persecution at this point, but not guaranteed uh, for, depending on your behavior, you may be judged temporally also, but also you will be judged eternally. <clears throat> so I would suggest, and I obviously cannot choose for you, you must choose yourself. Uh, God has to quicken you to this reality. Uh, you must uh, choose uh, temporal shame for eternal glory or temporal glory and joy for eternal shame. <laughs> And that temporal shame, or that temporal glory, and that temporal joy isn't guaranteed. You may still be miserable, you may still be ashamed, without any eternal joy. So, as the Lord says, uh, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? Well, my friend... He gains more than the man who does not gain the world and yet still loses his soul. There's a song that my church sings every year. Uh, I can't remember if it's the first Sunday of the year or if it's the last Sunday of the year. I'm pretty sure it's the last Sunday, though, uh, where the... Uh, very last song of the very last service 
uh, the worship pastor uh, starts uh, the song in a cappella and just says, Should nothing of our efforts fail, no legacy survive unless the Lord should raise his house in vain its builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain tell me what is your life a mist that vanishes at dawn all glory be to christ all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. There's multiple verses to the song, but I wanted to uh, bring up this because this last segment will be about glory, uh, and I find it important to bring up glory. Uh, we, or as that verse goes, that there are, we often are encouraged to do a five-year plan, to boast of tomorrow's gain, to boast about what we plan on gaining tomorrow, uh, and the... the hymn writer of this song uh, makes a very emphatic uh, what is our life to be able to make such a boast uh, is it not just a mist is it not just a fog that by dawn uh, has disappeared uh, the, the sun has burned it away uh, are we not just smoke and ash in the end of the day uh, so why do we boast about tomorrow's gain. Uh, why, why do we boast about things that we cannot even assure that we'll be here tomorrow? We can't even assure that we'll be here by the end of the morning. We may vanish by the morning, but yet we boast about tomorrow. So the hymnist then seeks us to recognize uh, that all of life should be sought to glorify Christ. And in fact, all of life, all of our lives, whether believers, unbelievers, saint or sinner, will absolutely, guaranteed, 100% accurate, glorify Christ. It matters to us, it matters to you, it matters to me, whether we glorify Him by way of John the Beloved Disciple, or Judas the betrayer, Judas the one to whom betrayed the Lord Jesus. Again, we will glorify the Lord Jesus. It matters to us in what way we glorify him. I, for one, will seek to glorify him by the way, or by the things that I enjoy, by the things that I'm ashamed of, by the things that I glory in, and in the grace that is given to me. Uh, these are the same things that I hope and pray 
and encourage you to seek after yourself. You have enjoyed a pleasant half hour of Curious Conversations. For more information, you can go to YouTube and Google me, Zachary Kameen, the Curious Christian. You can go on Twitter at Zachary Kameen, or follow me on Facebook, um, and just look up Zachary Kameen. By all means, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email me at ZacharyKameen at Yahoo.com. And until we talk again, remember to drink your coffee and come to Jesus.